from the festive studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in the Christmas City of Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another well-hydrated hour of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Tired of your carpet turning green as Christmas approaches? On today's show, we'll reveal the secret to a true needle-free floor. And no, it's not a shiny aluminum Christmas tree, Charlie Brown. Plus, how do you turn an exceptionally landscaped and expansive private home into a public garden? Ethan Kaufman, director of the newly opened Stonely and Natural Garden in Villanova, joins us to tell the tale. Plus, your phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and ideologically insightful inaugurations. So lend us your eyes and or ears, cats and kittens, because it all starts right here, right now. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we'll talk to Ethan Kaufman, who took a private estate in Villanova and turned it into a public garden. We'll figure out what he needed to do to make that transition. We're also going to reveal the secret to a truly fireproof live Christmas tree. Important information at this time of year. But mostly we're going to take your fabulous phone calls at 1-833-727-9588. Laura, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks, Mike. How are you doing, Laura? I'm doing very well. I hope you are, too. I am just ducky, thanks for asking. Where is Laura doing well? I live in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. It's just outside of Nashville. Okay, very good. So you hear us on the air there in Nashville? I do at um, at our um, NPL radio station, and you're usually on on Saturdays at 6 a.m. Okay, well, that's a bit early for me, but I'm glad you're an early riser. (laughs) What can we do? Well, we just... We just started a, a homestead, so waking up early on Saturdays is pretty much the norm now. Okay, now now you got to go back a little bit. So what do you mean <laughs> by a homestead? Well, my husband and I recently purchased about eight acres here in Mount Juliet, and it's great land. We've got space up front for farming, then um, the home, and then our back end has woods, so we'll be doing fun things in there like archery um, areas <laughs> for the kids. Yeah. <laughs> so this is so our plan is our five year plan is to take our farm full on homesteading so that not only are we providing like eggs and chicken and produce for my family, but then maybe a goal would be to have enough with this much land to be able to have a little income coming in so that I could quit my job. Well, you know, you meet one of the requirements uh, of that kind of sustainable organic farm, which is proximity to a good-sized metropolitan area. Uh, I I think something like this. Are there farmers markets in Nashville? And is um, I would imagine there'd be big support for uh, local growth. A lot of farmers markets, and another goal is we're having a, a big surge in restaurants. So eventually, once I get going on the produce, a goal would be to work out an arrangement with a restaurant that wants to do, um, you know, field-to-table growing, and we're planning on being as organic as we possibly could. So oh, that's just a goal. Yeah, um, there's no there's no reason to, yeah, there's no reason to go halfway. Organic gardening yeah. is and farming is actually much easier than conventional. And it's certainly better for uh, better for you. I, I, I know so many chefs who say they love to go out to farms like this and actually even do some of the picking. 
um, you know, the same way they would at a food distribution center. But now they're seeing the face of the farmer and how it's grown. It's, it's still growing by leaps and bounds. So what, what can we do for you? Well, here at, um, at Chicken Butt Farm, that's what our land is called. Chicken Butt? I, chicken Butt. Chicken Butt. Okay. Is that yep. a reference to a human or the animal? Do you think? <laughs> no, down here, a commonly uttered phrase is, what's up, Chicken Butt? Oh, okay. So when we bought the land, it was such beautiful land. I told my husband it needed a name because mm-hmm. it was, you know, large and beautiful. And uh, contrary to what sounds rather majestic, we named it Chicken Butt. Okay, so, yeah. all right. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. and again, there's there's a name that people won't forget at the farmers market. Where's those Chicken <laughs> Butt right. people? Yeah, Chicken Butt Farm. We have a big seven foot metal rooster that sits out on the front of the property. Oh, that's, that's great. Kind of our, our logo. But my question that I had for you was, in addition to the produce that I plan on growing and, you know, I'm starting to harvest next spring, we're also hoping to do some fruit. So I planted eight blueberry bushes, two raspberry bushes, and three grape plants. And although I've been growing blueberry bushes in pots up until now, this is the first time that I've had them in the ground. And I'm not too sure if I should be doing anything additional to protect them over the winter. Uh, to protect them over the winter, absolutely not. Uh, they're going to be much happier above ground than they were in pots, and they're also going to get their winter chill. Um, I hope. Uh, uh, and uh, are you growing a southern variety like rabbit eyes? Or are you growing the traditional uh, high bush? I have three high bush, and then I now have eight that are called pink lemonade. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so one of those specialty blueberries that uh, right. has an unusual color. So the only uh, the bl- blueberries are very winter hardy. The original blueberries come from the far north, um, even up into Canada, and those are the low-growing ones, the ones that grow like a ground cover. And the berries are very small, but incredibly delicious. So all of the other blueberries have been bred from those northern natives, including the high bush. So they're very used to winter. Um, matter of fact, they, they'd like a, a, a more of a winter than you're going to give them, but they'll probably do just fine. And again, they love having their roots in the ground. The two things about blueberries is you want to make sure their soil is very acidic. Generally, when things go into the ground, I say don't improve the soil in the planting hole. But in this case, I tell people to make the soil in the planting hole at least 50% peat moss. Uh, because excellent and is that what you did that's exactly what i did good good because these things are native to kind of peat bogs up in the north and they like it they like it the most acidic of any plant we really grow um you should be able to tell if your soil is acidic enough if you have a little cut on your hand or a little cuticle thing happening if you stick your finger in the soil it should hurt you should feel the acidity Well, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate the help. Well, that's just one plant, and you may want to space them pretty far apart because the high bush blueberries can get five or six feet tall and and live for many years, live for decades. So you, you want to plan for the final height now or in the spring. Now, you didn't plant raspberry bushes because there is no such thing. You planted raspberry canes. Now, raspberries are very different. Your blueberry plants are going to grow tall and wide, but they're going to stay put. The raspberries have a tendency to, quote, run. 
And with the better breeds of raspberries, the old-fashioned ones, they run into traffic. They're just crazed. They will <laughs> spread like mad, and they need a lot of room. Um, the corollary to that is if you've got a lot of room to give them, within a couple of years, you'll literally be picking gallons a day. So do they have room to spread? They do. I'll probably want to dig them up and plant them where they'll have even more room. But I just put them in the ground last week, so I'm not too worried you about don't, disturbing yeah. let them Let them go for the first couple of years where they are. Every okay. spring, they'll send up fresh shoots. Mm-hmm. I would wait a couple of years, let this patch get established, and then as the new shoots come up in spring, I would take them and make a second planting. Excellent. Because you'll always have more plants than you can use. You might even wind up selling raspberry plants. Um, That'd be great. If it's if really prolific. And grapes, as you know, grapevines need to be um, need to be pruned at the end of every winter, and you have to devise a trellising system for them. Uh, but raspberries, most varieties of grape, and blueberries are all very cold hardy, and there's n- no real winter preparation other than, you know, don't be pruning them at the end of the fall or anything to stimulate new growth. Let them go dormant. Gosh, Mike, this is great news. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. I have uh, farmer friends who make a good living off uh, a blueberry forest that's like 20 years old now. And we're not talking gallons. We're talking tens of gallons a day if you've got the stamina to be out there picking. Wow. They can be well, very I'll productive. Well, I'll have to send you an update from Chicken Butt. Yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll remember where it came from. All <laughs> right. Well, good luck to you in your exciting adventure here. 1-833-727-9588. Elaine, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I am just ducky today, Elaine. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. And where is Elaine doing great? I am in Echo, New Jersey. <laughs> All right. What can we do for Elaine in Famed Atco, New Jersey. Okay, so I have four flat earth existing gardens in my backyard. Mm-hmm. I've been there for 20 years. Right. Um, I want to convert them to raised beds, and I, I'm looking for some advice on how to move my current plants and then replanting them because I'm afraid um, the dirt is pretty, uh, it's, it's clay pretty clay-like so it's they're not easily they're not going to be easily um removed and that's one of the reasons i wish i would have known about raised beds back when i started but um i didn't um so i'm I'm trying to convert what kind of plants are we talking about uh when generally when people want to build raised beds it's for tomatoes and peppers and other vegetables um it's it's flowers they're flowers so iris hibiscus um coneflower Perennial, uh, perennials, right. So, you know, I'm going to shock and surprise most people and say, what's the problem with growing them in flat ground? Weeding. Ah, okay. So you want to get, you want to get away from those grassy weeds. Yeah. That, that goes sideways. That is uh, one of the biggest weed woe, yeah. you know, because typically the 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 flowers you're talking about are not grown in raised beds right um they're generally grown in in quote flat ground or maybe ground that was a little elevated in the beginning and if you wanted to improve the soil i would uh have just advised you to start layering compost on top and you know maybe i will do that okay um 
Ah, that sounds like a lot of work for little reward. The okay. Raised beds are for the tropical crops we really grow in the summertime when we really want to get a lot of tomatoes and a lot of peppers. They really help uh, fruit production and vegetable production. But with flowers, they're, they're kind of a luxury. So here, I'm going to suggest something a little unusual. Um, am I correct in that the biggest uh, weed problem you have is grass invading from the sides? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what I would suggest we do here is instead of taking all these plants out and, you know, you, you, you'd lose a fair share of them no matter how good you were at this. Because as you say, their roots, their roots, they have feet of clay. Yeah. And that's not the easiest thing to get plants out of. Um, what I'm going to suggest is you get some nice decorative edging and really define the outside areas because I presume they end at a lawn and the lawn is always trying to take over. Um, actually, no. What I did is when I moved into the house, I, I decided to create the whole backyard into gardens. Right. And I, I, so I didn't have any grass planted, so I have um, pathways in between the gardens. Oh, okay. So these are just opportunistic weeds. Yes. So I'm still going to say define, because these are beds, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And they're defined by pathways already. Yeah. And is it literally just the hardscaping and, and the beds? Yes. Okay. Um, would, uh, would the edging be disruptive, or might it make things look even a little more refined? I think, well, what I have now is I have uh, stones, just, uh, just regular stones that you get at the and th those are what outline each bed. But, you know, as, 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 as flowers grow and they, they have suppers and they, you know, the, the, the edging, the rocks moved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so those aren't really, that, I, so I think, yeah, defined, edge, uh, defined uh, decorative edging probably would be a better thing to do and then it, it would keep them contained. Yes, my raised beds were original, my oldest raised beds, I should say, are still framed by field stone that I dug out when I built the gardens. And it has been very difficult to keep that area weeded. I mean, the stone mm -hmm. looks great, um, mm -hmm. but over the years it's kind of, you know, gotten a little weedy in there and lost its luster. So we're going to begin a process of rebuilding the gardens. So, there, you know, in one sense, Elaine, there's very little difference between a framed uh, raised bed and a garden that's enclosed by deep edging. You've, you've got the most important thing. You've got the definition. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say, you know, get rid of the rocks. Maybe, you know, you can do something interesting with them someplace else. Uh -huh. Re replace the rocks with deep edging. You could also use pavers to make okay. a, a very defined space but the edging would give you the advantage of not having to make it linear okay you know the edging you could kind of curl around into ovals and things and then to improve your clay soil um add two inches of good yard waste compost uh, around your plants that's going to achieve several things first of all it's going to look better than anything you're putting in there now um, and we're going to make sure it doesn't have weed seeds in it. And there were studies done at three separate universities uh, that showed two inches of yard waste compost suppressed weeds just as well as two inches of uh, ground-up bark. Okay. So it's a great weed suppressant. And 
you should probably have municipal compost available somewhere in your New Jersey area or certainly can get it at any, um, any big landscaper or garden center. Okay. So you want yard waste compost. You don't want composted manure. And what I want you to do before you buy it in bulk, bring home like a five gallon bucket worth or you know just a children's bucket, something like that, and use it to fill two plant pots. And okay. one pot, you're not gonna plant anything. In the, other plant, in the other pot, plant the freshest seeds you have. If you're gonna buy something specifically for this, uh, buy a small package of pea seeds. Um, okay. They are the most vulnerable to herbicide contamination. Okay, great. All right, Thanks. Elaine? Yeah, thank you so much. I, I can't believe how much time and effort you saved me. Thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. That's my job is avoiding work. Yeah. I'm your host, beautiful Mike McGrath. Later in the show, we will tell you the best way to get your Christmas tree ready for a long spell inside without its dropping its needles. We're also going to take more of your fabulous phone calls. But now it's time to turn to our special guest for today, Ethan Kaufman, who is the director of Stonelay, a new public garden. Um, that used to be a private home. And we want to talk to him about what an amazing transformation um, must, must have to occur for that to happen. So Ethan, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, your garden is not only in Villanova, PA. Apparently, you just told me outside that it, it was j across the street from Villanova itself? Right across the street. Actually, the law school is across the corner, yeah. So this was once a private home. Do you know when the home was built? The first home was built in 1878, but it uh, was uh, leveled in about 1900, and that's when the second home, the Tudor Revival-style mansion that's there today was built. So anybody who's driven down that street in front of Villanova knows the place you're talking about. Well, yes and no. So part of the allure of this place is that there's this huge... Uh, curtain of trees around it and so people knew there was something back there they knew there was something <laughs> magical and grand but they didn't know what exactly and so um, now people are able to come inside and really see what's there because we're talking about somebody who had uh, who had the box who had the moolah sure sure it's a beautiful place and they would not want to be peeved at peeked at from the road they'd want their privacy exactly so how do you take a place like that and because it was a private home for many years, right? How many um, generations or different families? Well, there were three families that lived there, but for the last 80 years, it was one family, the Haas family. And uh, they were the last family to live there, and they were also the family that donated Stonely to Natural Lands, which is the organization that owns and operates it. So is, is that Natural Lands Trust, or is that another? It's one and the same. We actually went through a, a rebranding process a little while ago, so it's just Natural Lands now. But, so, but we can't trust you. Well, no, the trust is still there. It's implied. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Now, um, there is uh, uh, the Open Days program from the Garden Conservancy, and they do similar work to yours, is my understanding. They, they have these private gardens that open up for a day. They charge a little bit of admission. Then they take all that money and they go save um, a private home and turn it into, hopefully, a public garden. And uh, you've done the same thing. Absolutely. It's a wonderful organization. And uh, again, thanks to the generosity of the Haas family, 
we were able to open Stonely up in just a year and a half to the public. Uh, we transitioned it in pretty a pretty quick time, but um, we opened on Mother's Day this year. Okay. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. So um, the family is out, or they're all gone. Yeah, the last family member lived there in 2012, but uh, you know, obviously they keep in touch and are very interested, and and I think pleased with what's happened at Stonely. Now, how many? Uh, how big are the grounds? How many acres? Forty-two acres, which is pretty big in East Villanova. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, good size. Where, where is it? That I mean, that's the. It it really was a hidden treasure. Yeah, it's only two blocks off of Lancaster Avenue, which is yeah, <laughs> yeah it's the main drag. The main drag. So yeah, it's easy to find us as well. Yeah, because you drive down Lancaster Avenue, you kind of go through the college. Yeah, exactly. So when now and they had obviously kept the grounds nice for their own enjoyment. When you look at well, it's not a blank slate. I mean, you're looking at a finished painting and you're going to paint over top of it. You know, that's an analogy I hadn't thought of, but that's really kind of perfect. Uh, it's, it's a spectacular landscape. And what we're doing now is sort of adding, as you said, our own brush strokes, brush strokes of color, of texture, mostly at ground level because we have these amazing trees that have been there for 100 and 150 years. And do you have any any specimens, any ones that are especially valuable now that things like ash trees are under attack? Yeah, we do. I, I mean, I love all of our trees, but we do have, I think, about 13 that are listed among Pennsylvania's largest trees of their variety, which is a pretty impressive number, three state champions. So what did you feel you had to do to the grounds? Was Was it repainting areas was it accessibility was it the idea of there would be much larger numbers than even at the biggest party they ever threw absolutely you know the family did open stonely up every year uh close to mother's day it was when peak azalea blooming season was they ah. did invite their friends and neighbors and some of the public to come in and walk this place it was called the stonely stroll a lot of people that have been here to visit but we wanted to make it really accessible as you mentioned so we created a parking lot of course you need a place for people to right. to drive into and then all the pathways uh, so people can access it not just some people but everybody so we have a lot of ADA accessible pathways a lot of flat smooth walkways that strollers and walkers and everything really don't have much of a problem with did you deliberately change any plantings were there were there any that you took out or added there were a few that we took out um, Stonely in its new journey as a public garden emphasizes biodiversity which includes native plants and sustainable landscape practice so yes yeah, some plants we did take out that were invasive we had a lot of amir honeysuckle on the property we had, we're still removing some invasives now but and you're a fiend for native plants is my understanding yeah and they sent they sent us a bunch of images and even if I didn't know you had previously worked in South Carolina, and I think you went to college there. I did. You went to Clemson? Yeah. Um, even if I had not known that, I would have known it when I saw the pitcher plants. So you can't tell me you don't love carnivorous plants having gardened and worked in South Carolina. Well, I love them. I, I, well, first of all, I love all plants. I'm a, I'm a total plant geek, but I think pitcher plants are really, really special. And... Yes, we had five species native to South Carolina, but most people don't know there's one species native to Pennsylvania. And what does it have a special name? It's a purple pitcher plant, yeah. And it's kind of a squatty little thing. It has these little pitchers that are like five inches long, and they're fat. Uh -huh. Places like the Poconos and these mountain bogs. 
Oh, so yeah. much colder regions than one would think because the other the other carnivorous plants are like tropical, semi-tropical. Yeah, sure. It's it's the most northerly reaching pitcher plant. That Do we they have. get enough to eat? For those who <laughs> don't know, the the pitcher is actually almost a true pitcher. Well, I'm sure we're showing one on screen now, uh, but it's a tall a plant, and it's it's got a little a little tongue at the top that folds over, and it secretes good smelling stuff, and flies go in and flies can't get out and they slowly get digested down at the bottom of the carnivorous plant. Now, like I'm sure you, like me, um, watch the old Tarzan movies and you wanted the one that closed up on a guy, right? Uh, yeah, my, in fact, my dad loved Johnny Weissmuller, so we watched those black and white movies and uh, they're not quite that spectacular, but they're, <laughs> they're about as spectacular as it gets, I think, in the plant world. And, and also, you know, the Venus flytrap is native in North and South Carolina. It's an American native, perhaps the most spectacular plant in the world, one of them for sure. Yeah, I, when I was a kid and I learned that, I was fascinated because it, it looks like it came from Mars. Yeah. But it is native to a very small area in the Carolinas, is my understanding. Very small. I think uh, maybe 15 or 16 in North Carolina counties and only two in South Carolina. Now, you have pitcher plants at Stone Lake. Are they the Pennsylvania natives, or are you not being um, overly strict? We're using definitely Pennsylvania natives, but also natives from the southeast. So we're not being overly strict. Our goal is more about um, biodiversity, and that means lots of different kinds of plants uh, to attract lots of different kinds of wildlife. And uh, my understanding is the garden is free to attend? 100% free. And... Um, open every day except maybe thanksgiving christmas you nailed it in fact but we're also we're closed on monday so we're open tuesday through sunday uh, 10 a.m to 5 and uh, monday gives us time to you know do some projects in the garden things that are noisy things that are messy things that we use our equipment for and um, is it a place for weddings no not yet not yet no yet we're still uh, i think understanding how we operate and before we explore any any kind of facility rentals now you've got this, what I imagine is a beautiful mansion. Um, I, you know, it's, it just strikes me now thinking about this because when I give plant advice, I always try to walk myself through yeah. what's going on. And I'm trying to think of what you came upon. And so there's this big house. Did they leave a bunch of their stuff behind for people to like slather over and drool? Or, <laughs> you know, is it mostly the bones? Uh, it's mostly the bones. I think um, we we have a, a space that we use for events, and so we have furniture. But it's not it's not like a museum where we have a lot of old pieces sitting around. It's it's a it's a modern it's a modern use of a historic building. So the house is really not part of the tour or anything like. It is, yeah. The house when we we so we do tours, and uh, the house is always included, and it's it's kind of a highlight because you know tours and events are really the only way you can see it. So uh, it's, it's neat. It has a special story to tell, and I think people are really captivated when they enter. What did the family do? Uh, so the uh, Otto Haas and his wife Phoebe, they were the first family members to purchase Stonely, and Otto Haas was the co-founder of Roman Haas Chemical Company. Oh! A, a, a huge, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's where the money came from, and uh, not close to the factory or anything like that. No, not close to the factory, but uh, Otto's uh, son, John Haas, uh, he worked in Center City. And so he would actually take the train every day. He would walk through the yard to the Villanova train station every day. 
well into his 80s. And that's great. amazing. And that's why that's why he lived into his 80s. Yeah, because he kept a, busy. A remarkable man. So, uh, what are the highlights of the garden? Obviously, we're to, you know you you mentioned that they opened it up to show off their spring bloomers. Um, azalea specifically, but you got to have rhododendrons too, right? Yeah, we have a lot of rhododendrons. I think, you know, I think most people when they walk into Stonely, they're just spellbound, spellbound by the trees. I mean, they're huge, tall, old, uh, with lots of character. So to me, I think that's one of the highlights that hit people first. So half arboretum, three quarters arboretum? Yeah, it's a mix. You know, it's it's a landscape garden. That means it was designed with these open vistas in mind, uh, accented by uh, large trees and sort of the rolling topography of the landscape. So you don't see a lot of herbaceous color on the ground right now. That's what we're doing. We're adding that layer in. Well, you don't see a lot of herbaceous color on the ground right <laughs> now, you know, outside of Florida. So. No, especially not with the cold we have coming up. We won't see anything. Yeah. So um, is it is it four seasons, however? is uh, Are there a lot of spring bulbs in addition to the kind of up high plantings? We, uh, we're, we're adding perennials primarily right now. And what you get- Daffodils I think, are very perennial. They're very perennial, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so what you get, I think it's really magical in the winter with the snow. Um, and then spring has that renewal, the, the leaves are all flushing out. Um, and, and we do have a number of dogwoods that are in flower that are really beautiful. And you know, you mentioned that the, the, the real money shot is these giant trees. So is it possible that fall is as spectacular as spring there? You know, I spent the last 20 years in South Carolina where we never heard of fall. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so the first, the first two years, the first two falls I had at Stoney, they were pretty good. But mm -hmm. this fall was gorgeous. It knocked my socks off. I was like, wow, this is, I, I might like it better than spring in some ways. Yeah, my commute takes me through the mountains of the, of the Lehigh Valley. And every, there were all these dire predictions this year. Yeah because this part of the mid-Atlantic just got endless rain and soaking. Um, when there were sunny days, they were 100 degrees and intolerable. And all the predictors were it's gonna be a, a miserable fall color. Um, but I, I'm gonna drive into the, into the center lane, you know, when I'm looking <laughs> at some of these trees. So how would you rate this fall based on your experience with falls? Oh, right up there, right, okay. up, right, up, right up at the top. Okay, I, I enjoyed it. And we have some really uh, titanic sugar maples, and to me, they have some of the oh, best yeah. color of anything. Now, would you, as you progress, you mentioned sugar maples. So, um, did, were they ever tapped by the family for yeah. fun or provisions? Would you ever uh, be interested in, in setting up a little tapping thing? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I would. I is it? Can you do it without? I guess it's a renewable resource, right? Absolutely. That would be interesting. Do we get do we get sweet uh, sap down this far south? Oh yeah, oh sure. absolutely. Um, the timing is, you know, you tap the trees pretty close to the middle of winter. Interesting. And on every, like theoretically nice day, the sap flows. And then when the weather gets, you know, warm, that's when you take out the, the tubes and the buckets sure. and everything like that. And as you probably know, you know, what is it 50 to one or something? You got to boil this it's a very watery fluid, surprisingly watery. Okay. And then you boil it down till it becomes a maple syrup or maple crystals. But mm. it's, um, there, would, there would even been special houses on the property um, for that boiling to be done slowly so it wouldn't heat up the house. Okay, yeah, I think ours are 
they were primarily uh, ornamental for their, yeah, there may be half a dozen along one of the streets. Really beautiful, though. So this garden, thanks to the family, was saved, first of all, from there being like student housing or an apartment or something like that over there. And um, have you seen the students and the faculty, the Villanova people, uh, utilizing this almost impossible resource? I mean, I went to Temple, mm. and we didn't have a horticultural showcase across the street. Yeah, I think the students are really starting to discover Stonely. We have, uh, you know, I, I saw people studying on blankets the other weekend, and that really uh, warmed my heart because I think gardens are meant to be used and are meant for people to engage with them. And uh, Yeah, I know, uh, Villanova is not known as a horticultural college. You know, they're known as a basketball college. Yeah. Um, go Nova. And but uh, is there a contingent there of horticulture or sciences, plant sciences? Yeah, there's some sciences. I know there are some uh, ecology and conservation uh, classes and uh, history classes reached out recently. So, yeah, and it's a it's a wonderful school academically as well. So and beautiful campus, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very it's, beautiful. They have a they lot do a of great room. job. And so what's your long term goal here? This is. This is a brand new baby for you, right? It's only about a year old. Yeah, we've only been open uh, maybe seven months now, so you know we're still we're still in our infancy as a public garden, and I think right now we're, we want to focus on some of our programs. Um, I think that's really exciting and really, really where the the whole purpose of a garden is. If you have a garden and nobody sees it or uses it, then it's pointless. So. So Stonely is spelled S-T-O-N-E-L-E-I. G H and what's your website? It's uh, stonelygarden.org mm -hmm. and it can also be reached at natlands.org for and the Natural Lands mm -hmm. Conservancy. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Ethan Kaufman has been our guest. He's the director of Stonely. Go out and give him a visit. Thanks for being on the show. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our phone number is 1-833-PBS-WLVT, or in numerical terms, that's 833-727-9588. Linus, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks for taking my call, Mike. Congratulations on 20 years of the show. Oh, thank you, sir. My question has to do with, uh, I planted some small seedling Japanese maple. They were grafted. Uh, in an area, and uh, one was planted in the fall, and then one was planted in the spring, and then both of them in, later in the spring just wilted and died. And so doing some research on the Internet, it looked like I got verticillium wilt. Where are you, Linus? I'm uh, outside of Washington, D.C. I'm in the town of Oakton, which is right next to Vienna. I'm on the border of, the, of Vienna and Virginia. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, Vienna, where Wolf Trap is, right? Exactly. Uh, the yep. outdoor performance area. You mentioned that these trees were grafted? Yes. Who did the grafting? Um, I bought them from two different vendors, and I could tell that they were grafted. Uh, they, you know, when they give you the instructions, say, you know, make sure you don't plant below the graft. You know, that's that seems unusual to me. It's been a long time since I planted a Japanese maple, um, but I kind of remember them being on their own roots. Was there, you know, did any explanation, anything like that, other than the fact that you saw the graft line? Um, well, these are special kinds of uh, Japanese maples, this you know, special variety. One's called Steve Starfish, and um, so the, the leaf shape is very different. So I think in order to you know, have the, the, the leaf uh, consistent, um, they, they graft that onto um, whatever rootstock they use. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense to me in, 
in uh, for two reasons. And the uh, one's a starfish. What, what what's the other one? Um, it was uh, some kind of like I don't remember exactly, but it was a, a very fine leaf willow. I didn't plant. I inherited two Japanese maples when I moved into my house 35 years ago. And to this day, um, they are the only plants I've really ever lost. I kind of watched them, one of them die by degrees where half of it died off and I pruned off the dead side and then I had a lopsided tree for years. And then finally they just succumbed. And I talked to other people and I came away with the feeling that these were not the hardiest plants that you can have around. And so I wanted to do some research on that. And like you, um, I found one of the big causes of death um, for these trees is verticillium wilt, which is, which is kind of weird because I've always said that verticillium wilt really affects tomatoes. Um, and all the books will tell you that it affects other plants as well. But I really hadn't seen the effects. And as I went deeper into the research, all, all of the authors agreed on one thing, that no Japanese maple ever died directly of verticillium. Um, there was something wrong with the tree or the planting area and that made the tree very weak. So um, then the verticillium, you know, had an easy target. You know, the plants already had pneumonia, so to speak. One of the biggest problems with Japanese maples is poor drainage. So would the, might this be an area with the, not the best drainage on your property? It's at the top of the hill. I'm guessing a not. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, when you talk about sort of like, you know, young, sick plants, maybe uh, succumbing more readily, I replaced, you know, one of the Japanese maples with the same variety, but it was a much larger plant. So, you know, hopefully by having a more established plant, that one um, older plant, that one will be more resistant to verticillium wilt. Yeah. And um, in my experience, you know, the plant, the kind of plants you described, the, the fancy cultivars, um, they're a lot of fun, but they're going to be the first ones to, to go overboard in this storm. You know, the basic type may not be exciting, although it is a, a really nice four-season tree, um, but it's always going to be hardier than these hybrid or grafted varieties. Now, I presume if you've been listening to, to me for, for 20 years, you knew not to put wood mulch around the base of the tree and all that stuff. Yeah. And it's not growing out of a treated lawn and you don't give it tree spikes or anything like that? Nope. Okay. Um, what uh, Do you mulch with compost? Um, I will be because I'm just starting a compost pile. Okay. Yeah, you'll eventually get compost from that, but don't be afraid of buying compost. Or you're in the Washington, D.C. area, right? You have access to yeah. leaf grow, the, the Maryland compost that they make from all the fall leaves. All right, well, good luck in the future. And I don't blame you for trying, uh, trying to grow these plants, but these, these tricky ones can be a little tricky. Carol, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Carol. How are you? I'm good. I'm 50 miles north of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Carol, what can we do you for? Well, I want to know how to keep alive the approximately two cups of ladybugs that I have because every fall they swarm in their tens of thousands on the white metal water tank about three acres behind my house. Ha! Huh. That is amazing. So these uh, these ladybugs are not 
unique looking like the typical convergent ladybugs. These are these are all different colors and patterns, right? They seem to be. There's also a lot of wasps. Um, including the ladybugs? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, but that kills them, Carol, doesn't it? Well, no, they, they uh, are brought home, and that's where I find myself wondering how next summer, when my swamp milkweed is coated with aphids, where are they? And what can I do to encourage them to winter over so that I can have them, you know, three acres from where they're? Oh, that's, they're a, that's a great idea. Um, okay, so uh, what you have is the multicolored Asian ladybug, uh, considered an, an invasive species. It was released to combat pests, like you're saying, um, but it was not effective at the release point. And uh, scientists, the researchers, thought they had just died out. And then years later, they began showing up in people's homes in the fall. Um, in their native, I believe it's Korea, they cluster on the south-facing sides of light-colored houses or buildings trying to get inside, because in Korea, they hibernate inside caves. So over here, they try to do it inside our homes. So if that's a light-colored water tower and it's facing south and it's getting warm in the, in the cool air of fall, they're going to try to find a way to get inside. So what I would advise you to do, um, well, I'll tell you what to do with your ladybugs, but in the future, what I want you to do is make a simple trap so you don't have to deal with the wasps or the bees and don't have to separate them. Just take a pizza box, believe it or not, and okay. cut, cut a couple of little round holes in the sides at the top and place that right in the area where they congregate. They'll go in those holes. The bees and wasps won't go in those holes, but the um, multicolored Asian ladybugs will because they think they're going into a building. And instead, you'll go take the trap down every day or after a couple of days. And what you want to do is... Normally, I tell people to vacuum them up with a, a, a canister vacuum inside their home, put some raffia into, or hay or straw into the, into the bag first, and then spritz the bag and put it in uh, the warmest part of your refrigerator. And oh. once a month, just spritz them with a little water to keep them from dehydrating, because they're going to go dormant. They're going to go into hibernation. So if you've got them inside this pizza box, I would bring them home early in the morning because that's when they're going to be sluggish. Yep. And then I would uh, get some sort of uh, a breathable bag. Um, it could be a very small pillowcase, something like that, with some straw or some raffia inside. Um, moisten it down with a mister, though. You don't want to make it um, all too loggy in there. Um, and then dump the ladybugs inside. Just use a twist tie and put that into your, into your fridge. And you could add ladybugs to it every day. And, <laughs> and then in the spring, you want to wait for the first aphids to appear on your milkweed. And then you want to soak that area of the garden down really well at sunset. And then release the ladybugs onto the wet plants with the aphids. Um, if you try to release them during the day, they'll just fly away. If there's no water, they'll fly away because they're dehydrated from being in hibernation. And if there's no food, they'll fly away because there's no reason for them to stay there. 
but with the combination of, oh, and they also won't fly at night. So if you release them right after sunset, you've got 12 hours for them to find the water and the food and get acclimated. After that, there's not going to be any reason for them to leave because with the aphids to eat and the water, you know, miss the plants in the morning to keep them happy, it's going to be a great place for them to raise a family. Well, thanks, Mike. I'm going to go and uh, get a pizza. Now I've got an excuse for an anchovy pizza. Hooray. <laughs> All right, Carol. Good luck. Bye. All right. As promised, it is time for the question of the week. Essential cut Christmas tree tips or how not to walk on needles this year. Yeah, I promised an article on pollarding this week. That's a real word, by the way. But the topic turned out to be much more interesting than I thought, so I want to do some more research on it. And I realized that if I was going to go over the essentials for cutting cut Christmas trees fresh, I better do it before Christmas is over. And so to paraphrase part of another holiday tradition, I ask, why is this year different than other years? The answer, of course, is rain. Some of us got way too much, but many parts of the country got way too little. And yes, this actually has a lot to do with Christmas trees, both cut and, quote, alive, meaning that their roots are intact inside a big burlap bag and you have not officially killed them yet. Let's start with the traditional cut Christmas tree, of which there are several varieties. Firs are the most popular, but I've always been a blue spruce man. Fabulous color and nice strong branches that hold heavy hanging ornaments. But there are also two basic types of trees, pre-cut and quote, cut your own, which should not scare you off. It basically means that you and your family spend a nice afternoon walking around a farm, arguing about which tree is best, and then you finally tie a ribbon around one. Then you go congratulate yourself over your hard work with cookies and hot chocolate while somebody drags it out of the woods for you after cutting it down. And yes, you should give them a tip. A visit to a local Christmas tree farm is a great idea for several reasons. The first, of course, is freshness. If you're in the north, mid-Atlantic, or other region where your neighbors were building arcs and looking for twins, you know that that freshly cut tree is as full of water as I am full of other substances. And if you are in one of the unfortunate areas that were really bone dry this year, you'll know that your tree really needs the treatment we'll soon describe. But it's still going to fare better than a tree was previously cut you're also helping prevent that family farm from going out of business and being turned into condos. And you're getting the brats, excuse me, children, outside where they can blow the stink off themselves and enjoy the wonder of being outdoors for a change. Hide their phones, pretend they're whining as a Christmas song. And there's hot chocolate and cookies. That'll shut them up for a few minutes. Okay, here's the treatment, the true secret to a really fireproof tree. Whether you get that cut tree from a local Christmas tree farm or some shady character burning trash in a barrel outside of a bar, make sure the needles and branches are supple. If they feel the least bit stiff, or especially if they snap, take a pass. Have the tree shaken side to side to get rid of leaves, bugs, and other debris. Don't bang the trunk into the ground. Tree shaking machines are a real plus here, and do not neglect this step. Some people have had the pleasure of seeing praying mantises emerge from their unshaken tree on Christmas morning. Other people got ticks. That's some real coal in your stocking, huh? So when you get the tree home, use then a bow saw to cut another inch or two off the bottom of the stump. 
don't have a bow saw, buy one. They cost around 20 bucks, and they're the perfect tool for pruning medium-sized branches. If you got your tree from a farm in a wet area, yeah, you can skip the recutting, weenie. Go out and get a bow saw. No matter what, immediately plunge the cut tree into a big bucket or galvanized tub of lukewarm water for several hours, preferably overnight, and be prepared to check on and refill that container. And don't assume that the tree isn't thirsty just because you live in an area that had a lot of wet weather. Trees can be trucked in from far, far away, and if it came from out of town, it might suck up gallons. And yes, this is the true secret. Forget pennies in the tub and magic formulas from the internet that'll burn your house down. The secret to a cut tree keeping its needles past New Year's is to be sure you started out with a tree that was totally hydrated. Ignore this advice and green the color of your carpet will be. Okay, now we're going to attach the stand and bring the tree inside to the coolest possible area, away from any hot air, vents, or radiators. Refill the stand with lukewarm water and wait a full 24 hours for the tree to spread open before you ornament it. After that, your only job is to keep that water reservoir filled. If it dries out even for a day, the tree may be unable to take up more water afterwards. If crawling under branches isn't your idea of festive, pick up one of those gadgets that either waters the tree automatically, these look like wrapped packages and presents under the tree, or a long funnel-like device that allows you to add water while you're still standing up, like Santa's magic water spout. No, I'm not making that up. And it's so much fun to yell when you're setting the tree up. Hey, has anybody seen my Santa's magic water spout? Well, that sure was an essential look at holiday hydration now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be, youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producers are threatening to blow dry my tree if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 1-833-PBS-WLVT. No, that's letters. Wait a minute. Call us at 833-727-9588. Or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Or just look for all this new contact information at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to 500 of your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, and our podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer and suspected producer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work and stay current with what's happening with the show at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our website wonder is Anastasia Wackerly. Jazzy Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Kelly Hurd is our video editor. Our floor manager and official member of the Superman of America fan club is John DeCensis. Tyler Mann is our cameraman. Our director is harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Tavia Minnick works the phone. Regal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jaunty Jim McDonald. Adventurous Andy Cummins makes all the equipment work most of the time. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, is not our executive producer. Got it? He is not our executive producer. Anyway, he's late for a meeting. 
I'm your ho-ho host, Mike McGrath, and you will neither see me, hear me, see me and hear me, or pod my cast until I see you again next week. We'll be right back.